This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You know that feeling when you have something that's really been bothering you, or when you've been fixating on something in your life that's looming large in your mind? We all carry around different stressors in our lives, big and small, and I think we inherently know that when we keep them bottled up inside, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest, and to figure out how to work through whatever it is that's weighing you down. Therapy isn't just for people who have experienced major trauma. There are plenty of benefits it can have for everyone. It's helpful for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. And don't underestimate the power of boundaries either. Those are super important. If you've been wondering if you should give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's a fully online experience and designed from the ground up to be convenient and customizable to your schedule. To get started, you just have to fill out a brief questionnaire that will match you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no extra charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash filmdaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash filmdaily. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily. Today's Thursday, January 4th, 2024. On today's episode of the show, we're going to be talking about Jacob Hall's top 10 movies of 2023. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm an editor at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's episode by Slash Film editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Okay, Jacob, welcome back to the podcast. Before we get into your top 10, let's talk a little bit about honorable mentions. Did you have any that you wanted to mention here at the top? Yeah, the, I, I have six titles that I'll rattle off that were contenders for the list that didn't quite make it. Uh, Skinnamarink, uh, utterly terrifying, baffling, unique, special. It's, I think it's, people are going to be talking about this one for a long time. Uh, when Evil Lurks, the straight-up ballsiest horror film of last year. The Holdovers, old-fashioned, uh, beautiful, lovely, just a great time with the movies. Uh, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, just a stunning thing. I'm, I'm still flabbergasted it exists and looks the way it does. Uh, the Killer, David Fincher's already underrated movie. I think it's top tier Fincher, not lesser Fincher. Shockingly <laughs> funny and incredibly entertaining. Uh, and Wes Anderson's Asteroid City, which barely missed my top ten. Excellent, man. That's a that's a good collection of uh, of honorable mentions there. Okay, so let's get into it. What is your number ten movie of twenty twenty three? My number ten movie is uh, Bottoms, the uh, film from director uh, Emma Seligman. Uh, sort of a I don't want to say parody of, you know, teen movies because it doesn't it never really parodies anything. It's just his own unique, weird thing, kind of like a queer Heather's if directed by Adam McKay back when Adam McKay was good. <laughs> okay, yeah, I haven't heard it described that way, but that makes total sense to me. Yeah, I mean, it, this is a movie about the uh, uh, two teenage lesbians who start a uh, a fight club essentially in, in their high school to try to uh, get. Try, try, try to get laid with the hot girls and it's already a, a, a pretty funny inversion of typical teenage movie tropes and the movie is just utterly bizarre from the very moment it has it from the very opening moments it has this, this elastic reality where it's very clear this is not our world the rules of our world don't don't apply uh which allows it to go to some truly deranged places it's probably for my money the funniest film of 2023 the film i laughed the most at and 
there's stuff in this movie that's just stuck with me, uh, gags and visuals. Uh, but I really want to talk about, uh, emphasize that Rachel Sennett and uh, Ayo Edaberry is the two leads. Uh, such incredible chemistry, such incredible performers. So much fun to watch. Uh, just two of the great movie fuck-ups of recent years. <laughs> I, I love a good fucked-up pr- protagonist, especially in a dark teen movie, and these two are A+. Yeah, this movie is great, and uh, I, there's, there's um, you know, Jacob, when people make their top tens of the year, typically comedies don't really fall on those lists. Like, there's just something, and, and you know, we've seen this reflected in Oscars time and time again, where there's just something about um, when you're trying to compile a list and, you know, say that this is your best or favorite or like representative list of movies comedies just kind of fall off there so i'm happy to see one uh, make the cut for you yeah i also want to give a quick shout out to uh, no hard feelings which didn't which didn't make honorable mentions but i have i, I know for a fact i'll be watching bottoms and no hard feelings more often than i watch in movies in my top five just because they're such easy effortless watches yeah we uh, we undervalue comedies and i i wish i could say like you know, I have no hard feelings in my top 10, but but but, but I don't. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so let's go to your number nine. Number nine is a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and uh, Mutant Mayhem. Nice. Uh, ben, I have no nostalgic love for the Turtles. I did not watch the animated show growing up. I may have had one, a toy here and there. I don't like the original comics. I tried reading them at one point, and I thought they were kind of dull. I, I understand they're a cultural institution. I understand that they matter a lot to people, uh, but... I have no inherent built-in affection for these four characters. So when I say that Jeff Rose animated movie made me a fan, I am speaking like I'm as surprised as anybody how much I like this movie. Well, the animation is incredible. I mean, it's that post Spider-Verse thing of let's really go for it. Let's create a tactile, unique visual style that is literally unlike anything we've seen before. But I just genuinely fell in love with these characters. For the first time, I felt like these weren't just, you know, warrior turtles. They were actual teens with teen problems and, 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 and teen anxieties. And I love how Splinter, their, their adopted dad, voiced by Jackie Chan, really wonderfully by Jackie Chan here, is not presented as being like this wizened old warrior, but as a genuinely concerned dad. who t- And he doesn't just teach his kids to be ninjas because, you know, he's a wizened, seasoned warrior, but because... He's worried about them and wants them to know self-defense and, and, and is scared of the world above him. This is a movie that's so human and so dead set on exploring the emotional reality of the Ninja Turtles while being really funny and exciting and action-packed. I'm as surprised as anybody this movie is as good as it is. And I, it's going to be a film that I watch repeatedly. It is infinitely rewatchable and just a joy. This movie is pure joy and... I don't think it's going to make me want to seek out more Ninja Turtle stuff, uh, but I will absolutely be obsessed with this corner of the Ninja Turtle world going forward. Yeah, it's such a funny movie. It's so like structurally sound and it looks wonderful. And yeah, like you said, just, just a really smart approach to sort of redefining these characters for a new generation. Really great stuff there. Um, okay, your number eight. My number eight is John Wick Chapter 4 from Chad Stileski. I'm a... Ben, ever told my John Wick story? Uh, I don't know. I don't think so. All right. I'm going to be that guy. I'm going to be the John Wick hipster because this film was programmed at the first film was programmed at Fantastic Fest well, a decade ago. And everybody thought, oh, they programmed it to get Keanu here in person. It's going to be this low budget direct video adjacent thing that nobody's going to actually enjoy. But we're going to just love seeing Keanu here. And there was a press screening at eight in the morning. And I almost skipped it. And I arrived just a minute before it started, and I sat down, okay, let's, let's hope I don't fall asleep through this cheap director video nonsense. I started watching him going, is this actually really good? 
is this what, what what's going on? What what am I watching? And I then spent the rest of the day leading up to the world premiere of Fantastic Fest going around and telling people, change your schedule. If there's open seats for John Wick, see John Wick tonight. And people just kept going, really? I kept going, yes, skip, <laughs> skip that thing. You want to see John Wick with an audience. And I convinced like 18 people to go see it when they weren't. And they came back and it's like, oh my God, what was that? And I say this because I I, I, I don't have a lot to claim fame to, Ben. But I, 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 but I, I genuinely believe from the from the bottom of my heart, I am one of the first John Wick fans outside of people who made John Wick. <laughs> that's really cool because yeah, you you were you were hyping it up before the premiere even happened. So like that's a very small window for you to have become you know one of the first fans of this franchise. That's awesome. So so I say it's because I think all four movies are excellent. They, uh, Chad Zaleski is a, an unmatched action director when it comes to the modern stuff. Keanu is is a force to be reckoned with. I love this universe. I love how the fourth film. Uh, seemingly caps things off we know they, they, they leave it open just enough if they wanted to mm-hmm. uh but i like how as the john wick series has escalated it has not lost focus uh chad Selesky has not gotten lazy and the fourth film almost feels like a series of dares like okay our budget is is no longer the basement stuff it was in the first one we now have we can go to paris we can you know shoot these massive scenes with dozens of of, of stunt uh, performers and none of it phones in. There's, there's never a point in this film where I felt where it feels tired or it feels like they're running out of ideas or like it feels cheap or small. It is as big and as grand as it could be while still feeling like John Wick. And that's a really magical feeling. And I know I, I just feel like if there's a John Wick movie in a given year, then it's probably gonna make my top 10. So here it is. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. Uh, let's go to your number seven. Um, number seven is a one. I think it's been a lot lawless. Uh, Kills of the flower moon from Martin Scorsese. Um, I honestly, I don't know what else I need to say about this movie. And that's, that's kind of cliche to say like, oh, um, you know, what else could be said? But honestly, really, it's just, this movie is uh, a powerful indictment of America in every possible <laughs> sense. Continues Martin Scorsese's, uh, you know, ongoing career-long trend of of trying to reckon with evil. Uh, I think that if, if, if we want to pick one thing that unites most Scorsese movies, it is, you know... Or, a, a a a man who's deeply religious uh, and deeply concerned with morality and what it and what our legacies mean and what we leave behind, trying to understand why people do harm to one another, and this has never been made more clear than Coast of the Flower Moon, which is is as has been written about four hours long and often feels it, but I think it earns each of those minutes because it is uh, movies that directly want to be confront evil like this uh and do it honestly it smooth i don't think i'll be watching the movie again anytime soon but i i, I, I probably but i think about it regularly mm-hmm. and i think it's it's not as rewatchable as scorsese's other stuff but it's not designed to be it's designed to be a movie that pummels you a little bit and i, I admire that scorsese is using his took 200 million dollars of apple and paramount's money to uh pummel you about genocide uh, of course, and all, the acting's all great. Lily Gladstone for the Oscars, if, if that matters at all. But it's... I, I have a hard time saying things about this movie that haven't already been said better by other people other than I think it's a remarkable piece of work. Yeah, and, and like just a, a terrific um, piece of adaptation as well. Like, you know, you, you turned me on, I think, to that David Grant book, you know, well before um, the movie came out. I know it was in development for a long time, but I, I read it, I think, partially because of your recommendation. And it's it's so different than the book in a lot of ways. And I think... Um, I think it's a, a much better, uh, I guess, like final product or something. If you a much better, let's say, like storytelling vehicle than uh, than the book is in terms of like 
making it as a movie because they they famously talked about how they reworked it and and um you know shifted the perspective in, in different ways and interesting ways and things like that but uh yeah, i'm but yeah, really just, curious because uh the, the new book that david grant wrote uh the uh the wager which scorsese and dicaprio have also bought the rights to um has significant and vital digressions into the indigenous characters, indigenous communities that that, that revolve around the other, the white characters in that book. I genuinely wonder if David Grant saw what they're doing to kill the Flower Moon and saw what they're choosing to emphasize, which his book doesn't, and realized, oh, there's something that I should be focused on. I can't prove hmm. that, but I, I can't. But the, the wager, is, which is a great book, I read it in literally one sitting. It's riveting. <laughs> um, I I genuinely wonder if he took a note back from Scorsese. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. My wife and I got uh, the wager for Christmas, so we haven't read it yet, but um, I'm very excited to to dive into that one. Uh, speaking of diving, let's dive into your number six, Jacob. My number six is Eileen, uh, but from William Olderoid. I, I'm tempted to just say go see Eileen. I think it's a movie that benefits strongly from knowing as little as possible, uh, other than um, it stars Thomas and McKenzie, uh, Shay Wiggum, and Anne Hathaway. All three of them are great. Uh, I think people tend to I don't want to say are torn between who's better and Hathaway or Thomas McKenzie. I think they're both fabulous and they have incredible chemistry. I'll say it's that it's a noir drama set in the sixties, but a relationship between uh, Thomas McKenzie and Anne Hathaway's characters. And that I sat down in this movie knowing nothing more than that. And was kind of, it was pretty blown away about where it went. And I'm normally not the kind of guy who says spoilers are keep spoilers away from me, but, uh, this is a very rare exception where I think that this movie can be spoiled. So I kind of just want to say, if you if you want a really compelling adult drama uh, tinged in darkness that is not afraid to genre hop a little bit, uh, go see Eileen. Go see Eileen. It's, it's probably the, my favorite film from 2023 that got the least amount of notice or press and kind of you know, quietly faded away at the box office. But I think people are going to discover it. I think there's going to be a huge audience for this once people figure out what it is. Excellent. Okay, that's a great pick. Uh, Let's take a break, and then we'll come back and do your top five movies of 2023. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, Jacob, let's get into it. What is your number five film? My number five is Godzilla Minus One, another film that I was not expected to be as bowled over by as I was. It's from director uh, Takashi Yamazaki. And my favorite Godzilla movies are the ones that are horror films. I am not a, I am, it's not that I don't like Godzilla protecting the world or fighting other monsters. That's, that can be fun. But the original 1954 Godzilla is a, you know, a horror parable about nuclear war. And uh, Shin Godzilla from, uh, I think, 2016-ish is mm-hmm. a um, extremely bleak satire uh, uh, plus horror film. Have you seen Shin Godzilla, Ben? I have not. Uh, Shin Godzilla plays uh, what if the cast of Veep had to deal with a very serious, horrible monster invasion. Um, <laughs> and it has these clashing tones that really work to that film's favor. I think Shin Godzilla was my favorite Godzilla movie until Godzilla Minus One, which I think may have su- supplanted it. This is a... Um, yeah, it's set uh, in the late 1940s, right after World War II has ended, in a Japan that has been firebombed uh, and, and and nuked. So 
everybody is struggling to get their feet. All the characters in this movie are, are damaged, and it's set in a Japan that has has no military and is generally trying to recover from a long war um, in which they lost. And this film is very honest with its history and with its politics. The characters actively discuss how Imperial Japan uh, abused its soldiers and took advantage of them. It, 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 it directly confronts the myths of kamikazes, which were uh, military propaganda at the time, painted them as being heroes, but most of them were, were unwitting or, or manipulated in, into that. And the film tries to remove the mystique and, and take the blame for law of Japan's sins in World War II while also actively forgiving those who suffered, the soldiers who came home defeated uh, and lost. It is a really tricky tightrope to walk, and I am not a historian, but I'm a a history fan. I read my fair share of World War II stuff, so if I'm getting anything wrong here, I apologize. But this is such an an astute read on Japan's role in World War II, where it was an aggressor, where where the nation did evil things, but it also put its people through a meat grinder. Mm -hmm. And... Godzilla minus one uses Godzilla as a way to examine uh, how the Japanese people can and can and bounce back from realization that oh did we lose but you know uh, but we but we were not treated well we 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 were treated as as disposable uh, and we were treated as something to be thrown away so I, I if I was Japanese and I watched more into this movie where the with all were veterans of the World War II who are now civilians come together to battle Godzilla uh, and, and, and protect their home. The, the, the surge in my heart I got from those moments uh, was incredible as an American. So I, I genuinely would love to tap into how Japanese audiences respond to this film. I know it was a big hit in Japan, so I'm assuming it responded well. But I think Godzilla Minus One is historically interesting, and it's using Godzilla in such fresh, interesting ways. Like The fact that I've talked more about this movie's politics and its human characters than, than the monster says a yeah. lot, because <laughs> Godzilla is an instrument to explore you know, the idea of how Japan got back on its feet after World War II and how it, uh, how it, you know, recovered from everything that happened to it. Because we talk about the news, but the, the movie also dwells in the, the firebombings and everything that's often swept under the rug when Americans learn about World War II. So, I don't know. I like how this is an incredibly entertaining, crowd-pleasing Godzilla movie that is also a really smart, emotional take on uh, Japan and Japan's role uh, in this period of time. I think this is a great movie. Absolutely. Yeah. Fantastic film. Great pick. Uh, okay. You're number four, Jacob. Uh, back to Japan. Uh, I'm going with um, how, how Miyazaki is a boy in the heron. Uh, Studio Ghibli's uh, new film. Uh, I'm a relatively newcomer to um, Studio Ghibli. Uh, I only, I've only started watching them you know, over the past two years uh, after being encouraged by friends to do so for a long time. And I quickly realized, oh yeah, these are great for a reason people talk about these for a reason they, they are that good and uh the boy in the heron is that good it's definitely top tier miyazaki it's beautifully animated it's deeply moving uh it's odd it's it's the visuals are just really out there and i the trailers rightfully don't sell how fantastical this gets they they sell the period setting which is uh uh japan also right around world war ii uh but it's very much a quest movie. It's very much in the vein of, of Spirited Away uh, or or, um, or or Howl's Moving Castle in terms of its scope of, of fantasy. And I was just really mesmerized by this whole thing. I and in the typical Miyazaki fashion, where it's incredibly entertaining uh, until suddenly it's emotional. And without going into spoilers, the idea that this is a 
movie from an aging master of animation uh, that's ultimately about an all-powerful godlike being who realizes he can't create a perfect world uh, and how it's all slipping away from him uh, says so much about how Miyazaki views himself and his art. Uh, you know, famously a perfectionist, famously a guy who is never pleased. And once you realize that's actively about himself and about him so desperate to leave a legacy but feeling incapable of doing it, and the fact that he's such a genius who makes movies this beautiful, and that he has made a movie about how he doesn't think he can build a legacy is heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I, once that clicked, I'm like, oh no, I want to give him the biggest hug, but I know he'll never accept it. <laughs> Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, man, this movie is just like, there's so much going on in the film. And I I felt like kind of pummeled by it, like really um, uh, taken aback by all of the ideas in it. And I I don't think it's as, um, I don't know, easy to watch makes it sound like, I think there's there's a, a perception out there for some people who have not watched Miyazaki movies that like, it's a lot of just like characters sitting in fields and like watching the wind blow over their faces and watch the watching the grass bend and stuff like that, you know, and there are peaceful moments in Miyazaki movies. But um, what I'm trying to say is like th- this movie is not as uh, as easy to watch as, you know, many of his other films, um, but it, it has stayed in my head longer than a few of those other movies. So um, I guess, you know, there's trade-offs in in that regard, but uh, yeah, what a piece of work this is. Um, Okay, Jacob, your number three. My number three is Anatomy of a Fall uh, from director Justine Triette. This is something I kind of put off for a long time. It won the Palme d'Or at Cannes, which sometimes I see as a warning sign as often as is an encouraging thing. (laughs) It's, It's in French, it's two and a half hours long, and it's paced deliberately. You know, which is the kind way of saying slow. So I kind of put it off for a long time. Then I had a free afternoon and it was showing up at a local theater. So I went in and said, oh, I'll go kill a few hours. And I was riveted by Anatomy of a Fall. I have not stopped thinking about it. It is a courtroom drama. Most of the film is set in a courtroom as a woman is put on trial for the murder of her husband. And in order to prove the case either for or against her, essentially her entire marriage needs to be picked apart and examined and really put out in front of the public eye. And it's a really exciting courtroom thriller. Like watching the evidence unfold is genuinely exciting and watching the arguments from both sides is uh, just good stuff. But the painful humiliation of watching this character's uh, deepest secrets uh, come to the surface and they're, and her best defense is to essentially be honest about how awful her marriage was. Uh, ends up leading to like sequences of such rawness that I is like wanted to sink into my seat and like escape. I felt I felt I deeply felt uh, the emotions in this film, and I, I really appreciate that it doesn't give you clear answers. It presents the entire thing from from kind of a, from, from kind of a distance. It really wants you to make up your own mind or not about the guilt or innocence of it. It's 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 not about you know who done it. It's about you know what it's about how our relationships define us mm-hmm. and how this marriage um, was never going to end well. And the fact that it ends in either a murder or an accidental death is besides the point. It's it's just that 
I don't, I don't, I don't want to say too much because I feel like I'm gonna spoil this film. All, all I know is if you're worried that it's boring, it's slow, but it's not boring. And I've, I've thought about it pretty much nonstop since seeing it. Ben, I, have you, have you seen this? I don't, we never talked about it yet. I have. It's tremendous. Like I, um, I rewatched the scene, the, the big argument scene that takes place in the courtroom where it's like I think it's the only flashback in the movie where audio is playing of an argument that the the main couple had, and then you know, you, you actually sort of flashback and see the the visuals of the two of them sitting in, I think it's their kitchen, arguing about um, reclaiming time and like dividing labor among the, you know, among the marriage and like what their parenting situation is. And like these characters get so, they go for the jugular in such a, an uncomfortable way that, yeah, I, I had that same feeling where I just like felt like I was sinking into my seat. I felt like I was a voyeur, you know, like watching something that I was not supposed to be seeing. Um, but it's just like a powerhouse of tremendous performances and like excellent writing. Like some of the best writing of, of 2023 is in that scene, but really this, this entire movie is just like so well put together. So, yeah. And, and that scene talking about it in particular is incredible because it opens with just the audio and then we, the audience are allowed to see the visuals, but the people in the courtroom aren't. And the scene ends with the audio kicking back in. Uh, and you start to realize that the tone of the audio is distinctly different when you can't see everybody's faces. You start to realize that, people in the courtroom are getting a very different picture than what the people in that room would uh, experience, which is, which we are allowed to see, but the people in the courtroom are not. Mm-hmm. And the, and the way it, it showcases perspective and how uh, the incomplete picture leads to an incomplete truth is uh, feeds the rest of the film because it's just a one flashback we see. Uh, it really colors everything else in the movie. Like every, every other piece of testimony, every other story discussed if we realize we can't see their faces, we can't see the context, we will never know the, the full truth in the way that we do in that one moment. And yep. that one moment allows you to realize how deeply sad and despairing the rest of the film is. Yeah, 100%. And I think that's exactly like what the movie is is really about, sort of like writ, writ large, right? Like that, that idea that like you never really know the interior lives of um, – you know, of, of another people, another person's relationship, or even like the relationship that you're in sometimes. So um, yeah, just a, a really, really great movie. Um, okay, you're number two, Jacob. I'm um, number two. Uh, I feel guilty about this one because I saw this after Slash Film compiled this final list for the year. So I could not throw my support behind this one for our top 15 and didn't make it. I wonder if maybe if I'd seen it in time, I could have helped edge it toward the top 15. Uh, but here I am now. My number two of the year is uh, The Iron Claw. From director and writer Sean Durkin. Wow. Okay. Cool. Uh, ben, did you see this yet? I did. Yes. Um, yeah. I'm not a wrestling guy. I think wrestling is super interesting, but I don't actually watch it. Uh, but the story of the uh, Von Erich wrestling family is something I was vaguely aware of, uh, the, the broad strokes of it. And this film hit me like a, I mean, not the breaking the cliches, but like a, a, a truck, a freight train. I have never felt so emotionally destroyed by a movie. Um, I spent the last 30 minutes of this movie, uh, like literally shaking in my sheet, crying to myself. Just like, uh, and I was so- open, openly sobbing. And to my credit, most of the theater was too. It's one of the very <laughs> first time, last time, the last time I saw this happen was 12 Years a Slave, where I could feel, where I could hear like half a dozen people around me actively, openly weeping in a theater. And then Iron Claws is the time where I've seen, I've heard that many people crying in a theater again. But I don't think it's like manipulative or sappy. It's just, it it's a very specific view of a, incredibly tragic family and it's been so much to the film you get to know them you get to know their jobs you get to know why they wrestle and what and how they care about each other and it's such this it's such a it's such a great texas movie also speaking as somebody who's, who's who lives in texas it's a great depiction of 
of these, you know, uh, good-hearted Texas boys living in the Dallas area in the 70s, uh, chasing their dreams until things fall apart. And they fall apart with uh, such... Uh, I, I, if I, it's a case where like, you should read the Wikipedia page for what happened to the Von Erich family, and you shouldn't. You should, you should see the movie first. It feels cartoonish how badly things go for them and how much things fall apart. And But the movie is portrayed so raw and so honestly, and the actors are so good. I think that Zach Efron, Zach Efron has always been good, but he's incredible here. Jeremy Allen White, uh, Harris Dickinson, Maura Turney, uh, Holt uh, McElhaney. Uh, this, this movie just cut under my skin and just beat my soul to death um which i know is <laughs> maybe not something everybody wants to have a movie uh but i found this to be just an incredible experience and i'm gonna write a, a brief article on slash film about the thing i found really remarkable about this film it actually shares one piece of dna with the sopranos um which is that there are elements of the supernatural in the Sopranos. People's ghosts appear. People talk to the dead. People get visions in their dreams. And it's never a main plot point. It's usually written off as like, oh, that was a coincidence, or I just saw something in my imagination. But Creator David Chase ta- spoke about how, yeah, the Sopranos, uh, ghosts are real, the devil's real, supernatural is, re- supernatural is real, which is never a main plot point. It's, it's always lurking in the very distant margins of that show. And this is true of the Iron Claw. It's, uh, and it comes to the head in, in, in a scene that, shattered me uh we start to realize that a lot of the little things you think you're seeing about the movie which you think are was that a symbolic choice no there's a there's a vague veneer of the supernatural over the iron claw which uh is an extremely interesting choice and one that i think makes it even more fascinating i want to talk about that more but i i fear not enough people have seen the movie yet so maybe we can talk about that a little bit when we get into our big like movie moments of 2023 podcasts which are, i think are going to be coming in the next couple of weeks um and, and there's certainly at least one moment from this movie that I think is probably going to make the list, or at least will be like in in contention um, that happens near the end. That is just like yeah. a, a real gut punch moment. So yeah, that, that um, moment will be part of the discussion. That's what I'm talking about for sure. And I'm going to do like so I'm going to do a, a, a brief slash article. So if you have seen the film, look for that you know very soon. Excellent. Okay, so let's get to it, Jacob. Your number one. Uh, my number one is an easy choice. Is Oppenheimer, Christopher Nolan's film. It is. Um, I'm a history buff. I'm a Christopher Nolan fan. I love I love Cillian Murphy. Or, is it Killian or Cillian? Ben, I can never I'm, get this straight. I'm pretty sure it's Killian. It's Killian Murphy. Um, I this movie was tailor made from for my my interest and tastes. It is just Christopher Nolan doing his Dunkirk thing, where a film film as montage, a borderline experimental approach, uh, where POV changes and pacing changes, and years pass in seconds. And a film asks you to, to, to keep up with it. And over three hours, there's no fat to be found. This film is just relentless in its pacing and relentless in uh, using uh, the language of a big studio blockbuster, you know, because it's somehow an entertaining film about the, the worst thing that, ha- that happened in the 20th century, the creation <laughs> of the atomic bomb. Uh, I, don't, I think this is proof that, you know, adult stories and history and, uh, complicated themes of of you know uh, I don't I, of everything Oppenheimer's on about here it, uh, can be packaged in, into a billion dollar movie uh, it, I find it to be incredibly inspiring on that front but also I like that this is the most entertaining film ever made uh, about subjects that should not be as entertaining which is such a weird thing to, to think about uh, but this is a movie that made a billion dollars but it's literally about what it means to be complicit in violence and to uh, be so obsessed with 
doing with, with, with the, you know, can I do it that you don't think about, you know, the should I do it? Mm-hmm. And uh, I, uh, you've seen this movie. If you listen to this podcast, you've seen this movie. Uh, <laughs> I, I can't imagine. Yeah, I, I, I think this, I, I, I guess one of the biggest things I can say is I read American Prometheus, the, the giant brick-sized Oppenheimer biography before this movie came out. So I can be prepared and be able to say like, oh, here's a detail they missed. Here's a bit that was inaccurate. It's not. This is one of the most complete biopics I've ever seen. One of the most entertaining biopics I've ever seen. And one that refuses to glamorize the subject. It it, it does not treat Oppenheimer as, as a great hero or a great villain. Just a guy who contributed to something deeply terrible and forcing the reckon with it. And that's not an easy subject for any movie, let alone a Christopher Nolan blockbuster. I think this is just a tremendous piece of work and proof that yes we can make movies like this all the time let's do it more often just let, let <laughs> tell the directors do what they need to do <laughs> yes i hope that's a lesson that studios take as we move into 2024 uh jacob thank you for this list this is a, a tremendous list and um i'm going to link to our collective top 15 best movies of 2023 that we've created for for slash film in the show notes so people can check that out there um, I think that's going to do it for today's episode. You can find more about all the movies that we mentioned on today's show at SlashFilm.com. SlashFilm Daily is published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Overcast, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe to our newsletter. Send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, and mailbag topics to us at bpearson at SlashFilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. I would also love it if you could take a few minutes to rate and review the podcasts on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. That really does help us out a lot. Tell your friends about the show, spread the word. Thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you tomorrow. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.